Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Excellent. My name is Carl. I'm one of the ministers here at the Parkway Church. Glad you guys are with us. Excited to look at this narrative this morning. You might say to yourself, where's all the young guys? Where's the good looking guys? Where's the guys with hair? You got me. You got me today. Okay. Uh, So let's pray and then we will uh, jump into it. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We're grateful just for your mercy and grace to us in Christ. We're thankful that you are a good God, that you can be trusted, that you are faithful, that you are abounding in steadfast love for your people, and we are just so thankful that you have blessed us with this beautiful gift of faith that we might know and love and trust in your Son and what he's accomplished for us. And so as we study this morning together, as we consider another piece of the story of your church, the story of your people that you've woven into history, and we uh, look at all of the events that have transpired that have kind of led us to today, Uh, We pray that you'll bless us, that you'll encourage us, that our hearts will be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness uh, that can be seen in your story. So we love you. We thank you for your son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have been talking about church history, right? Since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at uh, uh, the, the story of the Christian church. Uh, and we've covered a lot of ground since the, since the beginning of the year. We started basically in the book of Acts, and we kind of uh, worked our way uh, through uh, the, the narrative, the major events of the growth and the development of the church. And uh, most recently, we've kind of looked at the heretics and the heresies that they espoused, uh, those things that rose up and how the church dealt with those things through various councils like Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, things like this. Uh, and then we took a closer look at a couple of men. We took a look at Athanasius and Augustine, or Augustine, and uh, I like grass, so I always think of uh, Augustine. Uh, I'm a lawn guy, so if you want to talk about mowing your grass, I'm your guy. But let's talk about this now. Uh, so the, the roles that those men played in some of the developments of the church's responses uh, to those heresies, and, uh, and then kind of how those responses tended to take the form of a creed or a confession, And then last week, we talked about how the church dealt with the issue of persecution. Uh, And when persecution came and some Christians recanted their faith or kind of lapsed is the word that we used, uh, they renounced their their faith in the face of persecution. What was to be done with them when they came and said, okay, now that there's no persecution, I would like to come back in the church, please. What do we do with them? We kind of dealt with that. That led then to a deeper discussion about the nature of justification itself. Uh, whether or not we have anything to do with salvation or if it's wholly a work of God and wrestling with the idea of how can God be sovereign and we still be culpable for our sins. And, uh, and that's where we stopped last week as we kind of discussed Donatism and Pelagianism. So as we've been walking through all of this, we've seen a lot of difficulty and conflict with the church. A lot, some of that conflict with external, right? Persecution uh, from the governing authorities on Christians. Uh, but in, in the more recent weeks, the conflict that we've seen has been internal, right? Some men trying to wrestle with and explain the mysteries of the Christian faith got some things wrong, right? And, and then their teachings had to be condemned as heresy and corrected and so on. But today, we're going to return to looking at a subject where the conflict that the church deals with is external. It's, it's imposed upon the church from the outside. It's not an internal conflict. We're going to be looking at the rise of Islam, which kind of takes place over the course 
uh, of roughly 100 years, right, from the mid-600s to the mid-700s or so, like the mid-7th century to the mid-8th century. And we're going to look at this narrative kind of from a couple of different angles. First, we're just going to look at the history of it, right? We're going to look at what happened, when it happened, where it happened, how it happened, these kinds of things. We should try to focus in on the facts so that we can understand what the story is. And then once we've got the nuts and bolts laid down of what the narrative is that we're dealing with, then we'll take a look at some of the effects that that story had on the world at large, and in more particular, and, and more specifically, on the Christian church. So let's jump into the story of how the Islamic religion kind of came to be such a large influence on the world stage. So as we look at this, we are not going to be dealing much at all with the theology of Islam. We're not going to be talking about what they believe, why they believe it, because we've already covered that in a previous class. So if you want to know more about the, uh, the Islamic faith, and what they believe and, and where they stand theologically, uh, you can go to our website and you can just go to the search thing and type in Islam and you'll find a theological equipping class that Jeff did uh, last year at the end of May. Uh, that's an excellent teaching that walks through all of that content. For our purposes today, we're gonna stay away from that and focus more on the history and the growth and expansion of that religion, how it kind of rose in influence and power. So. Uh, even though we did already cover this in that teaching, I'm going to give you a super fast refresher on how Islam got started. So there's a man named Muhammad, and in uh, the year about 610, he began to receive what he believed were revelations from God that he was getting from an angel, and he started writing those things down. Uh, he was living in a city called Mecca, uh, and he gets these what he believes to be revelations from God. He writes them down, and they essentially become what we know today to be the Quran, the, the kind of sacred writings of the Islamic faith. Then about 12 years later in 622, he moves from Mecca to Medina. He had some uh, political uh, concerns. He had some uh, infighting and some people wanted to kill him. So there was some persecution coming his way and he decided to leave. He moved to another city called Medina because he had trouble in Mecca and that's where he kind of uh, lives and that's where he kind of develops and, and, and kind of propagates uh, this new religion that he is establishing. Now, there's something important to know about what's going on in the world at this time, right? These two cities, Mecca and Medina, they exist in what's called the Arabian Peninsula, which is basically just a, a chunk of land that kind of juts out into the Arabian Sea. It's got the, the Red Sea on its uh, western side. We tend to think of this peninsula as being Saudi Arabia primarily today. So when, if you know where Saudi Arabia is, that little kind of giant L-shaped piece of land is the Arabian Peninsula. And at this time in history, the, this, this is not a unified group of people that live here. The Arabs that live in this land are kind of a fragmented group. Amber Alert. That was phones? That was amazing. Okay. I'm immediately thinking, I'm doing something wrong. Right? Uh, so, so this was a fragmented people. The Arabs that live on this peninsula are fragmented. They're not unified under one leader. Uh, they do not have a kingdom. They are not an empire. It's just a bunch of people living in various places. So they're tribes that are scattered about throughout the land. Amber alert. I knew it that time. Uh, so they're scattered throughout the land. They kind of have their own little chunk of land. They kind of keep to themselves. They might have a little skirmish or fight with one another here and there. And each of them tend to have their own little polytheistic group of deities that they worship. And so they're just little pockets of people doing their own thing. So they are not unified at this time in history. Uh, 
But this is what Muhammad does. From the time he establishes this religion, from the time he gets what he believes to be these visions from God, till the time he dies, he successfully unifies all of these tribes under one banner, the banner of Islam. And in 632 is when he dies. So just about 22 years after it began, Muhammad dies. Now, that's the background of the, of the religion and how it gets started. But now let's talk about how that religion begins to explode and, and widen itself out and spread out across the world. So you've got this first map here in your notes. So the world at this time, at the, right around the time of Muhammad's death, really just kind of has four major world powers. I'm not including Islam in that at this moment because they've just kind of been established and they're still kind of in their own little area. So in the middle here, you've got this purple thing that kind of surrounds the Mediterranean Sea. That's the Byzantine Empire. It is what is left of the ancient Roman Empire. It is a Christian, uh, it is a Christian group of people. That empire uh, is based around Christianity. Then to the east, or to, to your right, my left, I suppose, the, uh, this kind of light orange group, that's the Sassanid Empire. They're kind of a Zoroastrian a group of people. They are super weak and have been fighting for years, and they're going to be easily conquered soon, and so we're not going to get into a whole bunch of what's going on, but they, they exist, and they're over there. Then in the far west, on the left side of the map, you've got that red section that we now know as Spain. That is the Visigoth kingdom. That kingdom is kind of made up of a mix of Christians and pagans occupying that land, and just to their north, the blue section that we now know as France is the Frankish kingdom, also kind of a mixed bag of Christians and pagans. So then you have arriving on this scene in this setting where the Byzantine Empire, this one in the center, is kind of the strongest, most powerful empire in the world at the time. That's when the Islamic group uh, comes into existence. That's when these Arabs are united under Muhammad uh, and they become a unified people. So onto this scene, uh, they come, and in 632, Muhammad dies. And it isn't until after his death that things kind of go bananas in terms of expansion and growth. So after his death, there is almost immediately division in the Islamic faith. There's immediately division, and the division is over who should take Muhammad's place, who should be his successor, right? And so from here on out, the Muslim people, as ruled by a single leader, is going to be called a caliphate. Caliphate is a word that just means a people being ruled by a caliph. Caliph comes from uh, an Arabic word, khalifa, which just means successor. So the, the caliphs who then rule the caliphate are the successors of Muhammad. And so there is this division within the faith about who's supposed to take his place, who's supposed to be the next leader. Well, there's the Sunnis and the Shias. You've probably heard this before. These groups still exist today, and they still exist and are advocating for the same reasons that they did then, which is that the Sunnis, which currently makes up about 85% of existing Muslims, the Sunnis believe that the caliph really is just an administrative position. It's just somebody who can lead us, just somebody who can be in charge, the next guy who's strong and can handle it. We just need somebody to be in charge and help us get where we're going. But the Shias, which only makes up about 15% of uh, current Muslims, they believe that the caliph should be someone that's not only a leader, but also comes from the bloodline of Muhammad, because they believe that, that there is a religious element to this role. There is a prophetic element to that role that needs to be filled. So they see it as being a more prophetic role. So you have, uh, in spite of this division, 
you've got the Arabs beginning to expand up and out of that peninsula. So they were kind of relegated to, the, uh, to that Arabian Peninsula when they kind of first got unified. And in spite of the division after Muhammad's death, they begin to expand northward and come out of that peninsula and into the world. So they move north and they defeat both the Byzantines and the Sassanids in Syria. So Syria is just a little bit north of the peninsula. They come north. Uh, That area of the world is occupied partially by the Byzantine Empire, partially by the Sassanids. The Arabs come in and wipe them both out in that area and take that over, which is this kind of a a critical expansion point from which they can go east and west. And they're holding kind of central land uh, that will help them in, in their uh, in their expansion. So they move north, they defeat, defeat the Byzantines and the Sassanids in 636, which is only four years after Muhammad's death, so they're, they're still wrestling with succession issues, this, uh, this, this division between the Shias and the Sunnis. But four years later, they managed to move north and expand. Two years after that, in 638, they take Jerusalem. And it's not long after that that they take the entirety of the Middle East. And so by 661, which is only 29 years after Muhammad has died, Muslims hold the entirety of the Middle East. They've also moved a little south into Egypt, and they've taken Egypt. And so they have grown at a rapid pace. So you're talking about less than 30 years, and they've already taken over the Middle East, and they've already taken over Egypt. Then this continues on. They continue eastward, and they continue westward. And seven, by, by 750, Islam has controlled all of North Africa, Syria and Persia, which we know today as Iran and Iraq. These areas that we know today as Pakistan, Afghanistan, and a lot of Central Asia. And in the process, Islam has wiped out Christianity in Western North Africa, and they've weakened it in Egypt and Ethiopia and the Middle East. And so essentially, Islam is threatening the entire known world with, with, uh, with subjugation. It looks as though This this Islamic Arab state is going to completely dominate the entirety of the known world. And you can see here on the second map, right, what was green, this little piece of that peninsula, now is basically the whole map. Everything that the Byzantine Empire was is now part of the Arab Empire, with the exception of this northern western section where we have Italy, Constantinople, and these places. You see how the, they have moved westward across North Africa, and they moved up into Spain where that Visigoth group used to be. And so they have, they're threatening to conquer the entire world, and all of this in less than 100 years, which is an incredibly fast pace to take, take this level of land uh, acquisition, so to speak, right? So there's three battles that take place that kind of put a stop to this that are super significant and important for us to see and understand if we're going to see how quickly they were moving and then how quickly they were stopped. So by the grace of God, there were three specific battles that I want to share with you, just a little bit of detail because I think it's helpful for us to see and understand what took place. And these three battles are the siege of Constantinople. I've got them marked on that uh, second map. The siege of Constantinople, then the Battle of Tours, which is over in France, that blue area. And then the Battle of Talas, or Talas, uh, which is actually off of this map. It's further north and further east. I just kind of put the, put the arrow up in the corner, but it's a little further up. So let's talk about these. The first one is uh, the siege of Constantinople. So Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, right? The purple stuff on our map. So Constantinople, we're going to get whiteboard on you guys. I'm going to move this. This is about to be some serious artwork happening here. Okay, Constantinople... There's a piece of land here, 
a piece of land here. Constantinople's right here. This is all water in between, okay? And so what they wanted to do was take this city, but the city had a lot of fortifications, big, tall walls. It was not going to be easy to take. And so what they did, let's use a different color. Let's get fancy. Here we go. Was they set up an army to the west to blockade any trade routes that might take place to bring them food. Then they brought in ships into the waterways here to try to prevent them from getting food. So if you don't know what a siege is, it's this idea of we want to conquer this city. It's too well protected for us to actually just run in there and, and kill them. So we got to starve them out. So we block them on either side, preventing them from being able to, being able to get food. Now, this would have been super duper successful, except that the crews of several of these ships were Christian. They had conscripted some Christians to sail some of these ships. Hey, you Christians, you go in here and you help blockade this so that we can take this Christian city. Well, the Christians on the boat said, cool. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. So they got here, and once they got here, they just pulled into port, and they were like, hey, what's up? Listen, we love Jesus, so we thought we would just hang out with you guys. And y'all, if y'all want to just burn these boats, we could do that. They're like, yeah, let's do that. So they burned some of these boats because the Christians just gave them up. And then the Byzantine Empire sent their navy with what's called Greek fire to destroy the rest of the boats. If you don't know what Greek fire is, it's kind of amazing. It's basically ancient flamethrowers. They developed this super-duper sticky, super-flammable liquid then they developed pumps that could be operated by hand that would pressurize this gross, sticky liquid and shoot it out through a nozzle on the boat and they would put a torch in front of the nozzle and they would basically shoot your wooden boat with hot, sticky fire, which is kind of amazing. So they did that to the rest of these boats. So all these guys are, how do you say, gone, okay? Then over here, we've got guys that are trying to lay siege to a city from the west that came from the Arabian Peninsula. This is way further north. They're not used to what, what's gonna come in the winter. When the winter comes, it gets super duper cold and they're like, man, I don't know if you'll notice, but I don't have a coat. And so they got real cold, a lot of them died, and the ones that remained were easily defeated. And so, the siege of Constantinople was a total failure. And the Arabs had to go back home, which for them was literally anywhere else, right? So they left Constantinople unsuccessful. That was in 717, 718, which is actually before they moved west across North Africa. The next battle is the Battle of Tours. And look at this, Carl is prepared. Wait for it, wait for it. Oh man, you're welcome. Okay, so the next one is the Battle of Tours, which takes place in France. So on our second map there, we can see how they have moved across North Africa. They got to the Strait of Gibraltar, which is this little bitty waterway between North Africa and Spain. They cross that waterway no problem, and they get in to what we know today as Spain. It's where that Visigoth Empire was. And they showed up, and they're like, hey, what's up? We would like to fight you and take all your land. And on the Visigoths said, huh? Oh, I'm sorry, we're busy fighting each other right now. And they were, they were in the middle of a civil war. And so the Arabs said, well, this is going to be easy. And so they beat everyone and killed them all and took over their land, okay? 
So then they started trying to move north into France. We had this, this Frankish kingdom. And as they moved north, they started sacking these cities, taking all their goodies, and it was really easy. And somebody that got beat down south in France said, man, somebody needs to go tell the boss. And I'm going to go tell the boss. So he goes up north to a guy named Charles Martel. Charles Martel is the guy in charge of France. His title is Mayor of the Palace, which kind of sounds like something like a middle school boy would say at a slumber party, fighting for the top bunk in a pillow fight. And he got so excited that he won, he can't remember it's called King of the Hill, and he goes, Mayor of the Palace! Or something, right? The, the idea is the mayor of the palace was the guy who ran the king's household. He was in charge of the king's household. He was in charge of the affairs of the kingdom. The king was really just a figurehead at this time. These kings, they had a nickname for them, which I can't really pronounce. It's French, but what it means is do-nothing kings. So the kings in France at this time weren't really kings. They were just figureheads. Think about like the way England works today. You've got the queen. She's in charge. She signs things. She waves at people. But the prime minister is the one who's really in charge and running the government, right? It's similar to that. So somebody went and told Charles Martel, Charles Martel, they're coming. They're going to get us. And he says, I got this. So tour, which is spelled with an S, but it's French and it's fancy, so you don't say it. Tour was this city that had lots of goodies. They had lots of rich stuff, and the, the, uh, the Arabs wanted it. So Charles Martel comes, and he brings his army down, and he is a military genius. And he sets up his army right here where this river splits. And he's got forests on either side of him and a river on either side of that. And the Arabs are coming from the south. So he's already chosen the battleground, which is, you can't come at me from the right or the left, you can only come at me from the front. So these guys had more troops, they had cavalry and stuff, but their only option was to attack them head on, and they did, and they were, how do you say, unsuccessful. Okay? So once again, they failed. And they went home. But not before Charles Martel and his men killed the leader. The leader that was leading this Arab incursion into France had a name, Abdul Rahman al-Ghafiqi, he was not only the leader of this army that was trying to invade, he was also the governor of the area that used to be Spain, that Visigoth empire that they took over so easily. So he was the governor, and they killed him in the battle. So when they went back home, they're like, hey, we lost. And also, the boss is dead. So then it took them two years to replace him, which gave Charles Martel plenty of time to go back home to build his army, to increase his empire, to strengthen his army, not only through military training and conscription, but also through his descendants. Charles Martel has a grandson named Charlemagne. And we'll learn about, more about him later. So, the Arabs failed in Constantinople, in the middle. Then they failed in Tours, in the west. And then the last one is the Battle of Talas, or Talas, which took place in what we would say today is Kyrgyzstan. This battle was between Arab forces and Chinese forces. And there's not a whole lot of interesting stuff about this battle, except that the Arabs won this time. But here's why it's significant. For two reasons. The first one is that the Arabs, after this battle, even though they won, decided 
moving to the east, moving to the north in that area of the world is just too difficult. Supply lines to be able to successfully expand in that direction are too difficult. We're not messing with that anymore. And the Chinese, who were trying to move to the west, decided, man, those guys are ferocious. We're not going back. And so both of these, four, both of these empires stopped trying to move in opposite directions and stayed where they were. That's the first thing that's interesting and, and significant about that battle. The second is this. There were many Chinese prisoners that were taken by the Arabs after that battle. Some of those prisoners possessed knowledge of a secret art that China, the Chinese had hidden from the rest of the world for a long time, which was papermaking. Papermaking came back with the, the, the Arabs from the Battle of Talas, came back into the Arab world, which was literally everywhere, and worked its way through Europe into the, what, what remained of the Byzantine Empire, and that had great effect and great change for record-keeping, for bookmaking, and then eventually printing, which would come 700 years later. And so that, of course, has a significant influence on the ability for the Bible to later be reproduced and distributed. So why did this happen? Why did Islam spread so quickly, right? So essentially, one century after Muhammad's death, Islam had become this dominant force in the known world. How did that happen so fast? Well, first is through military might and tenacity and ultimately surprise, right? They had military might. Once they united all these tribes, they had a lot of people and they trained and they developed a strong army and they became this overwhelming force. They were tenacious, right? They were tenacious in, in, uh, in, their, in their cunning, in their willingness to do what needed to be done to win because they believed they were fighting for God. They had this zeal to expand not only their territory, but their faith. They were wanting the rest of the world to convert and to become Islamic. So they were motivated by a, a zeal because they were fighting for God. And then lastly, there was an element of surprise involved. There was no Arab army to be concerned with until there was one. So the rest of the world wasn't thinking, hey, how do we do what we're doing and watch out for those Arabs down there? They were like, no, we don't got to worry about those guys. They just worship their, their little gods and hang out in their little tents. Everything's fine. And suddenly they show up and start beating people. And everybody else says, well, it'd be fine. I mean, they did a little, you know, they did a little something, but it'll take them a while to, to rebuild and try to do something else when it took them six months. It took them a year. And so the expansion came as largely as a surprise to the rest of the world. And then also there was this idea that there were kind of these promises made to non-believers, non-Muslims. Basically, if you like your religion, you can keep your religion. Right? If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Right? Same kind of idea. Right? You, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jew, well, you're a monotheist. And so are we. And those are basically the same. We got it right. Y'all kind of messed it up. But whatever, it's fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it, you guys. Yes, did we destroy your army? Yes. Did we kill all your leaders? Yes. Are we in charge now? Yes. But everything will be fine. You guys will be fine. And so there were these kind of initial promises that everything would be okay. But once they established control, once they had established a government and a method of ruling, then they established this hierarchy in society. If you were an Arab Muslim, you were at the top of the heap. If you were a non-Arab Muslim, if you'd converted, then you got a lot of privilege and a lot of uh, freedom, but a little less. If you were what they would call people of the book, which would be Christians and Jews, people of the book being the, because you were kind of an Abrahamic religion like us, you believe in one God, sweet. Their main concern was polytheism. 
That was the main thing that the Arabs were fighting against was polytheism. And when they encountered Jews and Christians, they're like, well, you're not polytheists, so it's fine. But those people got taxed into oblivion. The amount of taxes you had to pay as a Christian or a Jew, any kind of non-Muslim, was exorbitant. It was unbelievable. They established rules about marriage. A Muslim man oftentimes could, if he wanted, take a wife from a non-Muslim society, but a non-Muslim man could not marry a Muslim woman. And so they established these methods that increase the Muslim faith, that move it outward, and that subjugate and make extremely difficult any other faith system. Christianity in those regions, in those regions therefore, became really numerically hurt. There's a lot of attrition. Lots of Christians were like, it's cool, I'm Muslim now. I was never really Christian to begin with. That was just kind of what we were doing around here. But now we're doing Muslim stuff, so I guess I'm a Muslim. Right? So there's lots of conversions to avoid the taxes and to avoid some of the social stigma and persecution that would come their way. But at the end of the day, the ways that Christians in particular were treated varied wildly throughout uh, the Islamic societies. In some places, you genuinely did have the ability to worship in peace and to hold to your own laws. In other places, that was not true at all, and there was great persecution and even murder that took place if you were unwilling to convert. And so there, it wasn't one size fits all. It wasn't they treated them really good or they treated them really bad. It kind of depended on who you were and where you were and what, kind of, what could you offer us. If you were a scholar, if you were a scientist, if you were a doctor, if you had value to the Muslim society, then you got a little bit more favor than if you didn't. So the promises of peace with non-believers uh, was part of their strategy. We come in, we take over your military, we take over the governmental authority, and we tell you, hey, hey, everybody stay cool, it's going to be fine. But it isn't actually fine. It's going to be extremely difficult for you. You're either going to convert or you're going to leave, or you might get killed. Those are essentially your options. So that is essentially what we're looking at in terms of the rise of Islam historically. What happened is that Muhammad starts this faith from getting what he believes to be visions from God. He convinces all of these tribes to unite. They spread out. They take over essentially the entire known world. And then they're stopped in these kind of three key locations, which kind of confines them to the, to the land that they've taken. So how does all of that affect the world at large? Well, first, it puts Western Europe in this position to be ready to kind of rise to world prominence. They have been insulated from these, this Islam, Islamic expansion by their unsuccessful attempts in the West and in the central part of the world. And so Western Europe is ready to rise to prominence in the world because they, did, they were not prominent prior to that. Prior to that, it was more North Africa. It was more to the East. But all of those places have been taken. And so what's left is Western and Northern Europe. And so that part of Europe is poised to rise to world prominence that we'll see as we move through the story in the coming weeks. We see, obviously, that, that Arabia has become this dominant world force. It isn't just the strongest uh, empire on the planet. They literally hold all the cards. They literally hold all the land, all of the scholarship, all of the historical artifacts. It all belongs to them now. So there are these cultural effects that come from this. 
These ports and these centers of culture and learning are now under Muslim control. They took uh, the center of the Islamic empire, moved it to Baghdad, and they began to pursue learning and education and the sciences and the arts and medicine and things like this. They translated lots of the ancient Greek and Latin texts into uh, Arabic. They tried to make Baghdad the center of commerce and culture. They tried to demonstrate, hey, we're not so bad, you guys. This faith is good. Our system of government is good. The way that we take care of our people is good. You guys check us out. We're really studied, we're well-learned, we love education, we love truth. But in spite of these expansions, in spite of this, uh, this attempt to demonstrate that, that learning and knowledge was at the forefront of their desires, all of those cultural artifacts and writings, the access to them, to the rest of the world, becomes greatly reduced. Right? Today, if you want to read something that Aristotle wrote, just reach in your pocket. Pull out your phone, beep, boop, 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 boop. That's what my phone does. I don't know what yours does. Beep, boop, boop, beep, beep, beep. Anyway, you just pull it out and read whatever you want. Get out your laptop, typey, typey, type. You can find anything you want. But before that thing that we now take for granted, if you wanted to access the contents of some other library that wasn't your local library, then you had to go to your local library and get on a special computer that was connected to a special kind of internet that only talked to other libraries find out what they had, and maybe make a request so that that library in New York would send a book to your library in Dallas, and maybe now you can read it. And before that, you needed to know the Dewey Decimal System. And some of you are like, yeah. And other people are like, I don't know what you're, is that a cartoon? What are you talking about? The Dewey Decimal System is this method of organizing books in a library before computers, okay? So you had to know how to use that to find out if your library had the thing you were looking for, and if they didn't, then you needed to correspond with a different library. What does that mean, Carl, correspond? It means to literally write a letter on a piece of paper with a pen and mail it, and then wait for weeks for them to respond and say, yeah, we don't have that book. You're like, dang, now I'm gonna write a letter to a different library. Or you had to physically travel to this other library. And then before that, there wasn't a library on every corner. Every town you lived in didn't have a library. There were only a few libraries, and they were often very far away. And you had to travel to distant lands, like North Africa, in order to find the scholarship that you were looking for. And so the idea is that who controls those cities and who controls those libraries that are in those cities has a great impact on who has access to the knowledge that's contained in those places. And it would remain that way for a long time. Those things were under Islamic control. And so Christians having access to the ancient philosophers, Christians having access to a lot of these ancient writings decreased and diminished greatly to the point of almost inaccessibility. And that had a huge effect. Now, how did the rise of Islam affected the church in particular? Well, the first thing is that the Christian church now had its first organized rival, so to speak. Right? This was the first time that, we, that, 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 that history saw the rise of a particular religion that not only held to a particular set of values and beliefs, but also felt the need to expand, to grow, to evangelize. Right? That didn't really exist except for the Christian church prior to this. And so religious conflict for the church used to mostly deal with conflicts with Judaism, right? The Judaizers and Acts and things like that. 
or internal doctrinal issues where they're dealing with heretics or things like this, or just dealing with per- just persecution from the, the local magistrates or whatever. There weren't any real conflicts with other religions yet. Most other religions were localized pagan groups, kind of like we talked about with, with the Arabs early on. And so this idea that Islam wants to evangelize, wants to grow, wants to expand, and so it did. Islam, like Christianity, is still spreading today. There was a, a new mosque built here in McKinney in the last couple of years. So this was something new. This was a new thing the Christian church had not yet dealt with. And it caused them to think differently and consider differently. What does it look like for us to be faithful moving forward? The second thing I want you to see is that the idea of Donatism, was what we talked about last week, is essentially wiped out. It just goes away completely. That issue never really got resolved, right? Donatism was this schism between this group of people and uh, Orthodox Catholics that never got resolved. It dealt primarily with the concern around how the sacraments were administered by priests who might have recanted their faith. So I baptize you, now persecution comes, and I'm like, I recant my faith, don't kill me. And now the question becomes, is your baptism valid because I've recanted? Because I'm no longer counted as a believer, does your baptism count? Was it efficacious? Do you need to get rebaptized? Those kinds of things. That's what that Donatist, Donatist uh, controversy dealt with. Well, that never got resolved. It never got fixed. It kind of got hotter and colder. It came up and it came down, but it never, never got resolved until the rise of Islam. And as they swept through North Africa, which is where all the Donatists were, it just disappeared. That problem was gone. Next is that the, the Christian church kind of gained a military mindset about expansion, about evangelism. They witnessed another religion say, we want you to believe what we believe, and we're going to do more than just talk about it. We are going to gather our armies, come to your country, conquer you, and then make things real difficult for you to not believe what we believe. And that was something new that had not been seen in the Christian church got a taste for that. The Christian church said, huh, I didn't know you could do that. And so that is, becomes an issue for the Christian church, as we'll see moving forward with the crusades and these kinds of things. The last thing I want you to see that the rise of Islam did, and this is the most important thing. If you learn nothing else today, you forget everything I said, you forget all my cute little whiteboard drawings, you remember one thing, it's this that the Christian church was greatly diminished and weakened by the rise of Islam. Before this happened, Christianity was thriving and had control over nearly everything that touched the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this is not to say that Jesus has not built his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, that remains true. But the, the influence and, and the freedoms of the Christian church ebb and flow over time. And this is a time when it constricts, when it shrinks while the Byzantine Empire was itself centered on its capital in Constantinople, and this is really important, the Christian faith had most of its scholarship and most of its best thinkers to be found in northern Africa. We think of Christianity as being this white man's European religion, but the reality is prior to the rise of Islam, it was primarily an African religion. Northern Africa is where all of these men that we've talked about came from. That's where all of the scholarship came from. Not all, but a lot. By way of example, let me, let me see if I can put this into perspective. Let me give you a list of most of the major cities that we've talked about. 
so far through church history. Since January, we've talked about a lot of things. A lot of large cities have come up. Jerusalem, Rome, Antioch, Damascus, Constantinople, Alexandria, Carthage. There are others, but those are the big ones. And of that list, they were all taken by Islam, with the exception of Rome and Constantinople. Constantinople almost went down, but they didn't, and they will go down later. It's not Constantinople anymore, it's Istanbul, right? But for now, it's Constantinople, they've resisted. But all of these major cities, all of the places where scholarship and Christian thought was coming, where good, healthy, vigorous debate over what does the Christian faith believe, what do the scriptures teach, comes out of North Africa. And the rise of Islam as it sweeps across northern Africa shuts almost all of that down. Think of it like this. The, the, uh, the federal government of the United States is broken up into three branches, right? You've got the administrative branch, the legislative branch, and Hollywood. <laughs> the judicial branch, right? So you've got the three branches of government, and that system was designed in order to hold back, hopefully, some of the sinful tendencies of man. The sinful heart of man clamors for power, wants more, wants to take, wants to grow, wants to have influence, and so on. And so these three branches of government were meant to be checks and balances against one another to prevent one man or one small group of men having too much power, right? The president would love it if the judicial branch would always rule the way that he wants, but they don't. The legislative branch would love it if the president would just be quiet, but he doesn't, right? This idea of checks and balances is valuable for the system, valuable for the country. In a similar way, this Byzantine empire, the Christian empire that existed, existed in the north in Constantinople and places like this and in the east in Jerusalem, but there was so much in the southern part of that empire in northern Africa that gets wiped out. It's almost as if one or even two of those branches of government just completely get removed. If you get rid of the legislative branch and the judicial branch and all you're left with is the president, he's just going to do whatever he wants and there's no way to stop him, right? Or if, there are, if the Supreme Court is gone and there's no president, okay, then the, the legislative branch just passes whatever they want. There's nobody to stop them. In a similar way, when you remove North Africa from the picture, what you're left with is a Christian church, this Christian empire that no longer has the same checks and balances it once had. In a system where at one point, a guy could say something wonky in Constantinople, and a guy in Carthage says, uh, hang on, I don't think that's correct. We should probably talk about that. Let's get together. Let's meet. Let's visit. Let's, let's hash this out and figure it out. Because I don't have to worry about the same political considerations that you do up in Constantinople, because I live over here. Let's write to each other. Let's work this out together. There were these ways to check and balance one another. But once the legs essentially are cut out from underneath the Christian church, in northern Africa, what you're left with is this one small piece of the puzzle that now doesn't have the same checks and balances. It can now run rampant. It can now drift. And we'll see that in some ways it does. So because this weakening takes place, the center of Christian thought and doctrine is going to move from Constantinople over to Rome. And that's going to lead to a couple of things. One that we'll talk about next week, the Holy Roman Empire that Jeff will be talking about. And then the, this, this schism, this break with the Eastern Orthodox Church that Zach will be talking about in a couple of weeks. So let's pray, and then Zach is going to come up, and we're going to answer a few questions. 
Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you love us, that you're good, that you're faithful, and uh, we pray that as we study these things, uh, even though some of it might be tedious, some of it might be details that we've never considered and maybe don't want to consider, Lord, I just pray you'll encourage us, encourage us that knowing the story of your church is good and it's helpful. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to share this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be with your people and uh, just ask for you to bless us as we uh, continue on this morning worshiping you in spirit and in truth that uh, your spirit will encourage us and remind us of your goodness and grace to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.